0: and Happy New Year! I'm Aaron Fowler and welcome to another episode of the Disability Sports Podcast. My guest this week is somebody who has had a successful blind cricket career playing for both Sussex and Hampshire over the last 20 years. He's won many domestic trophies with Sussex Sharks as well as picking up individual honours along the way. My guest this week is Ian Morris who is known to most people by his nickname Tiny. Tiny is someone I had the pleasure of playing cricket with for 5 years whilst playing blind cricket for Hampshire. During the interview he talks about his impressive blind cricketing career, as well as his role working for the charity Guide Dogs. Here is the interview, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Tiny, and welcome to the podcast. How are you?
1: Yeah, very well, Aaron. Very well. Yourself?
0: Yeah, no, I'm very well, thank you. Um, it's nice to uh, sort of, uh, you know, have a chance to catch up and, uh, you know, sort of hear about your uh, your blind cricketing journey. Um, obviously, you've been playing the game for, for quite a number of years now. Um, but I just wondered if you could start off by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, so my name is, uh, well, my real name's Ian, but most people within the world of, of blind cricket know me as Tiny, and that's a, that's a nickname that I adopted before um, I even started playing. Um, so my middle initial is T. Um, I once signed myself Ian Tiny Morris as a joke, and it just stuck because of my ironic six foot four and um, reasonably sizable nature. So Yeah, I've been playing the game now. Next season, um, provided nothing snaps off between now and then, will be my 20th season um, outside of um, the blind cricket world. I'm a guide dog owner. I also work for guide dogs and um, keep myself busy in between the cricket seasons, trying to hold everything together for when the sun starts shining and we can get out there and play again.
0: And uh, I mean, everyone who knows someone with a guide dog only wants to know them for their dog. So uh, can you tell us uh, your guide dog's name and uh, how old? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So Millsy was seven last week. He is a giant golden retriever. Um, He is uh, he's a big old boy. uh, So he looks I'd look silly with a small dog. So, yeah, he's a he's a 40 kilo retriever. And uh, <laughs> lovely fella he is. So um, I know who's the uh, looker of our partnership.
0: Um, so I wondered if you could start off by telling us um, a, you know, a bit about where you grew up um, and what were you like as a child?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in a town called Gosport, which is those people who know Portsmouth as Portsmouth Harbour. Gosport is the other side of the, of the harbour mouth. Um, quite a blue collar um, city, really, or town. It's a borough, in fact, but there's splitting hairs there. So yeah, grew up there with my um, my brother, my mum and dad um, on a council estate, and yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't the easiest time to be growing up. Um, by the time I was sort of ten, it was 1979. Um, there was kind of a lot of industrial unrest at the time, um, so dad sort of lost his job and unfortunately never got another one. So it was quite it, it was quite a tough upbringing. Um, the school that I went to was, you know, was to describe it as rough was probably an understatement. It was the kind of place where, you know, they would check you to see if they, you had a knife and if you didn't, they'd probably lend you one. It was, um, you know, it was that kind of an environment and I, I was always loved my sport. Um, mainly played sort of football, um, cricket, and then sort of got into rugby, um, Sunday League football was where I started and it, it, you know, as the re- much bigger bloke, I, I was a put off really by football by the it, it was kind of by the mid-80s at this point and there were always people who were wanting to square up in Sunday League football and I, I, I sometimes didn't wait until after the game like they suggested. So um, the Hampshire FA invited me to take a year off. I started playing rugby um, and played a lot of tennis as well. So whilst I paint this this kind of picture of somebody who was quite sporty I was always on the big side so I'm six foot four so then I when I was at my fittest I was about 20 stone um yeah which is ideal in rugby um but as sort of time progressed i I realized that you know a lot of it was playing tennis so if you hit the ball at me I would hit the ball right back at you but if the ball came off sort of the edge of the racket or somebody hit a lob I would just stand there like a lemon. Um I just didn't know where the ball was. And you know, you don't think anything of it at the time. Um so fast forward to being on my driving test, where I very nearly cleaned up a milk float that I hadn't seen. Um the instructor grabbed the grabbed the wheel, moved it sharply so we didn't crash. And I failed. Um and then there was an element of my brother went in for a routine eye test sort of two days after that, where they discovered he had the signs of the condition called retinitis pigmentosa, which all of the best people have, as you well know, Aaron. And um, so I went and they checked my eyes and found out I had no peripheral vision at all in my left eye. um, And my peripheral vision was dodgy in my right. And we then had that sort of conversation that said, well, you're going to lose your eyesight. Oh, right, okay. Um, sort of when, how long, in what? And they said, well, at well, some point, never really know with RP. Um, so, yeah, I then had to toddle off to work and go and have a sort of slightly difficult conversation because at the time I worked in a laboratory and slocking lots of chemicals about. And, um, you know, the health and safety folk, you know, the old health and safety gone mad. We don't really want a partially sighted person um, schlocking chemicals about. So that's how kind of, that's how, how kind of life started. And that takes me up to my sort of mid-20s or early 20s.
0: And um, so you, you've talked about there about, you know, uh, I guess, you know, uh, when you were diagnosed. Um, so obviously, I, as you mentioned, I've got uh, retinitis, pigmentosa as well. But can you just briefly um, describe to people, you know, how that uh, affects uh, your vision?
1: Yeah, so it's a progressive disease, but it does progress differently in different people. So at that point, I had, you know, I I didn't even know I was vision impaired because there's that position where you don't know what somebody else sees. So a lack of peripheral vision explained why I would lose a tennis ball. And my night vision had always been iffy. Now, I was a scout in my youth and I was always the guy who fell in a ditch on night hikes Um, And so all of that sort of dropped into place. Um, So RP generally starts with a sort of narrowing of the peripheral vision, loss of night vision. And then unfortunately, mine sort of spiraled in as which is the classic way it works. So your field of vision gets narrower and narrower till in the end it was like looking through a sort of toilet tube. So, you know, I could see probably 30 yards in a straight line reasonably well you know and if we put it in cricketing terms i could see the bowler but looking at the bowler i could only see their sort of head and chest but couldn't see the stumps and then unfortunately the last part is where the 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 pigment that's in the back of your eye moves into the central vision and at that point life just got very very blurry um to the point where now I've been in an audio-only world probably for about the last 20, 25 years where I can see light, dark, you know, I can see the sky and not the sky, um, but that's about the extent of, of what I can see.
0: And um, how old were you when you first started playing blind cricket and how did you first get involved with the sport?
1: Yeah, so I started playing in 2004. So I, I'd, I'd seen online I, – I was – I was looking for a for a new challenge really and and because uh, I I got sort of diagnosed back in 1990 and and fairly soon after I stopped playing sport um and I gained an awful lot of weight you know I I I said I was always on the heavy side but I also you know was very active and I stopped doing you know I, I moved less and ate more and that never ends well if you're predisposed to being heavy so I hadn't played any sport at all for probably twelve years. Um, I had a young family. Um, Tom, who's my eldest son, would have been just coming up three, and Noah was born in the summer of two thousand and three. Now, I'd originally intended to play in two thousand and three, but um, you know, looked at it and thought, well, it wouldn't be fair to Nikki, my wife, to head off to cricket with a three-year-old and a newborn baby. So, deferred starting till 2004 when I then joined the newly formed Sussex Sharks that had played their first season in 2003
0: and um, what was it that you know when you what was your experience like you know of uh, when you first competed in blind cricket and what was it that you loved about the sport that kind of kept you going back
1: I mean, for me, I've always loved team sport uh, and individual sports are great, but that sort of team ethos, that sort of all pulling together, you know, looking to fight for each other. And it's that, you know, rugby would have been my preferred, you know, if I had to pick one sport, rugby would have been it because there's that whole, you know, in it together mentality. And, And what I found in my sort of blind cricket career was that the game was very much in its infancy then. Well, I say it was in its infancy. You know, the 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 primary club national cup has been competed for since nineteen seventy nine, but there was an element of that the 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 sport was kind of there were ten teams. It was split into two divisions. Two of those teams were linked to vi schools and colleges, so RNC and Worcester. Um, so there was always there was this element of there was the travel involved, but it was just. It was just the thrill of being in the competition of competitive sport again. And that's, that's kind of what I loved. But I think it, it was a challenge at the time for me because my vision was fading pretty quickly. And I had a very narrow field of vision, which meant, you know, if I picked the ball up when it was bowled at me, I could pretty much, you know, track it. But I only had to look six, eight inches to the left or the right, and I didn't see the ball. And it was, you know, it was very hard to to get a place in the team, for want of a better term, because, you know, there is this element of the totally blind players are valuable. The partially sighted players are very valuable. The folk who are between those two positions, and at the time, it was a couple of years after that, they created the low partial category. Um, really, uh, there's usually a spot for one of those in a team, and at the time Sussex were captained by one of the best low partials ever to play the game in Andy Dalby Welsh. So I was never going to take his spot. So a couple of years in, as the sort of team started to grow, it was it was more of a challenge for me to get a regular place.
0: And um... This obviously, I guess, then led to around the time when we first met, and I guess, really, which probably would have been around uh, towards the end of two thousand and eight, um, which is obviously when you know Hampshire Blind Cricket Club uh, sort of formed, Um And how did you, how did your involvement with with Hampshire sort of come about?
1: Yeah, so I, I'm I'm kind of Hampshire born and bred, and there's an element of I would always cheer Hampshire on at the cricket, um, and I'd heard about Hampshire starting a team up and. I wanted to help so there was this element of you know i went along sort of really initially my plan had been to uh, to just try and help hampshire get themselves set up and going i'd never had any real intention to to play for them and it, at the time sort of almost in the close season um i lost the last of my useful vision and so it was that realistically i had you know, I'd be gone from being a low partial to being a B1. And I'll never forget that first training session where, you know, uh, uh, it was brilliant. You know, it was such a lot of, you know, young people and and folk who were keen and so many players are still playing now. But there was a real challenge in the, the, the B1s, as they were called then, as the totals, as they were called now. Um, n- never been asked to bowl a ball before. So there was this element of the excitement was building towards a new season. And I thought that genuinely at the time wasn't a single B1 who could realistically bowl the ball 22 yards. And again, there was no development rules at that time. So, you know, you had to keep bowling until you bowled six legal deliveries. So if you bowled 50 wides, um, the game would never finish. So I, I kind of made that decision that, you know, I, I really wanted to give Hampshire, the support to, to get up and going, and and so switched allegiances um, from Sussex to Hampshire. Um, spent five kind of happy years there, uh, apart from a, a, a quick nip back across to Sussex for the twenty ten Cup. Um, yeah, and 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 saw Hampshire kind of you know grow and compete, and you know play in the national league. But as with so many clubs, it, 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 sometimes it's very hard because you get a hard core of group of friends who form a club. And Hampshire, as you know, was formed out of a number of sort of people who had, who had been at school together. Um, but then as people get older and they grow up and they have grown up lives, people sort of drift away. And that challenge of recruiting their replacements sort of comes into play. No, no. No. And I think, you know, if I look back at that original, you know, that first season that I played, um, you know, there were 10 clubs across the UK. Of those, I am fairly certain that only Sussex and Metro still exist. So the likes of Leeds and Districts, you know, White Rose, I think RNC will have said they'll be playing again this year um Avon, which were based down in Bristol, um, oh, what were they called? Team in Cambridge, Eastern Vipers. You know, they they were kind of the teams of the time, and so many of them, the South Wales Dragons, um Birmingham Sports, they all had this kind of period where they existed for, you know, anywhere between three and ten years. But it, it, it does seem, or it seemed at that point, very hard to build sustainable clubs.
0: And how did you find the challenge? Um, Obviously, you know, you you came from Sussex, which were, you know, obviously Sussex have always been one of the top teams within blind cricket, you know, kind of competing for trophies to then obviously coming to Hampshire, you know, a very new team. How did you find that challenge?
1: Well, it's interesting that I think people, many people forget that, you know, Sussex started from somewhere. And in that 2004 season, the first season I played, I remember us going absolutely bonkers because we we had won a game. Um, you know that first season we, we lost every game. The 2003 season, you know, 2004 we, we started drawing and winning games. But it it was it was 2010 before Sussex won a single trophy. So you know it was seven years in the building. I mean, since then, to be fair, we've been winning trophies for fun almost every year. But There was this position that at the time that I moved from Sussex to Hampshire, they they weren't the powerhouse in blind cricket. They are today. You know, almost every year, the cup final was either Metro versus Birmingham or Metro versus South Wales or Metro versus Metro. So Metro kind of ruled the roost for probably the best part of 25 years. So I didn't find it a massive, you know, shock coming to Hampshire you know it was that piece as as with any new team that the difference between you know playing in the nets and playing competitively you feel the difference you know it it is a uh, you know in, in the nets if your stumps get knocked over it's well try again next ball um obviously in the real world that's your afternoon over once it's happened
0: and when you are at Hampshire, obviously, as well, to, you know, to sort of the last couple of seasons, um, I think it was, um, obviously, you went on to captain's side. How did you find that experience? And, you know, one season, I think it was 2012, you know, we kind of probably surprised a lot of people by finishing runners-up in the league.
1: Yeah, no, we, we got runners-up in the league, and it, it was that piece where I, I really enjoyed captaining Hampshire um, at the start. And it, it is that element of... I think one of the challenges is that by the end, uh, I I knew it was time for me to go because often the weight of administration of organisation is carried on the shoulders of the few. And it's great if you've got, you know, the perfect is to always have 12 committed players who want to play and are credible, for want of a better term. The challenge comes when you've only got eight and you're trying to, you know, make up an 11 or you've got 15 and you've got four people who are really sad. They're not selected. Well, I'd got to the stage where there was only eight available or sometimes I got a couple of people who really didn't see the game as a competitive sport. they saw it as a, an afternoon out, one of a better term. Now, I always play sport hard to win. And for me, it, it, it was, I think that the, the tipping point was one afternoon where, you know, I had organised getting the side together. You know, a couple of lads were like, well, I haven't got transport. So I'd organised lifts and, you know, got everybody together and I got us all out onto the middle of the field. And obviously, as a totally blind player, when you're trying to organise the field, you need people to listen and work with you and the the umpire said well you know tiny we can't start cuz one of your players hasn't got a wristband and i was like are they not he's like where's your wristband he's like oh i forgot to bring it and i i lost it if i'm honest with you and i i got really cross because it was a case of i've organized everything else all you had to do was turn up and dress yourself and you can't manage that and i i i I'd really lost my temper and it was, I, you know, I just suddenly recognized that like, I'm not enjoying this anymore. I'm at the point where this isn't fun and it's not fun for me. And it's also not fun for the people around me. You know, if I am, you know, if I'm shouting at folk. So I, I, I I really enjoyed the journey. As you say, 2012, was a highlight in terms of coming runners-up in the league I think the weather helped us a little bit if we're honest yeah. Yeah. um you know but we and we got to t20 finals day a couple of times and and we had some fun and that that's the I think that's the key thing I've always I've always played the game for fun uh you know I in my work life I have you know reasonably senior roles and management responsibility and there's an element of if I can just have fun and behave like an idiot at the weekend on a cricket pitch, <laughs> that's great for it. You know, that is great stuff. And I think that's where, you know, the, the, when the fun stops, stops. And and I thought to myself, do you know, what? this, this isn't fun anymore. You know, I'm, go- I'm going to step back.
0: And I think it's really healthy that you, you know, kind of recognize that because I think, as you say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the same as you, you know, you like you, oh, first and foremost, sport should always be about fun. You know, uh, the winning is, you know, you're know, you going to win things if you're having fun at what you do because you're going to be committed to it and you're yeah. going to want to play well. So I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Um, we've obviously talked quite a bit about blind kit. Just wondered if you could briefly uh, describe the rules of the game uh, for anyone who's not familiar with it.
1: Yeah, so it, it is a game, um, and I think this is one of the fascinating parts about the game, is it is is one of, I think it's the only blind sport I'm aware of where partially sighted players and totally blind players play together with their own sort of sight level. So obviously in ball everybody is shaded. Um, but in blind cricket, it's a mix of seven partially sighted players. And then there's either four totally blind players, one player who has, or three totally blind players, and one who's a low partial with very low vision. In terms of the game itself, it's cricket as you know it. It's played with a football, um, size three football. So a child's football that's got all bearings in it. Um, obviously, there's an audio element to it. So the bowler will line themselves up. A totally blind bowler will ask the wicketkeeper for either a clap or they'll call their name. They'll line themselves up, deliver the ball in a classic bowling style. Um, The ball has to pitch once before a partially sighted batsman, pitch twice before a low partial or a total batsman. They shout play when they release it so the people know the ball is on its way. Batting is exactly the same as you'd expect you know keep out the straight ones hit the bad balls hard and then in terms of catching it is absolutely as you would expect with the exception of the totally blind players can take a catch off one bounce so they tend to field very close um which is why for those of you who can see the pictures my nose perhaps isn't as straight as it could be (laughs) or should be um You know, because there is that element of you're that close and it's fine if somebody's defensively dabbing you down a one-bounce catch. Um, But if they've absolutely got hold of it and your nose is in the way, it it is the classic football in the face.
0: And uh, what would you say are your strengths and weaknesses as a a player?
1: Well, it's fascinating because I I have evolved over time. Um, So principally, I've always been a bowler. And I think my strengths as a bowler are that I am competitive. I never give up and I'm just good enough to cause people problems. And part of the game is that people do try and take diabolical liberties when the totally blind bowlers are on. So as you can imagine, most totally blind bowlers don't have a run up, so they tend to bowl slower. They tend to bowl a little bit more inaccurately in terms of length and width, which means that really good partial batsmen try and do hideous things to the total bowlers and black them to all parts of the ground. And also there is that risk that because you can't see, you're going to bowl more extras. So, you know, my my strength, I think, is that I I have always chipped in with wickets, um, often because people are trying to, belt the ball into the next country and i play for a team who's got really good catches in the deep um and then the 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 very peculiar thing is that um i i'd never been much of a fielder i'm very big so i get in the way um but i lost a, a chunk of weight last last year and last season um yeah, I managed to take seven B1 catches. Now, B1 catches are, they're, they're quite a rarity. You know, most players, I think the player of the year before, when it took three in the season, that was the most that anyone had taken. So I was very pleased last year that at the age of 54, um, <laughs> I was getting down low and scooping things up and, you know, was was very proud to receive the Totally Blind Fielder of the Year award, which was one I never thought I was going to win. Um, now the batting is probably is my weakest suit by some some margin, and it's one of those things, Aaron, where I don't know why. Um, because I uh, before before we had to wear shades, I was a hopeless batsman. When shades came in, so all blind players now have to wear blackout glasses or or a cloth shade. I got better for a few seasons you know and hit, hit some really decent scores and i've always felt i always think i'm a batsman you know i'm i'm sort of the 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 tall fat white tendulka, very wristy player um but unfortunately despite you know me deciding that that is the case my my batting has been hopeless for years and um what? i still hope that that one day with a change of bat or with with something i'm i'm going to get bat on ball more
0: regularly what? I've always felt personally when I've seen you bat that actually you're you're almost better when you're batting when you try and play more aggressively. I've seen you very occasionally kind of like take a step that you know that out your crease and sort of you know try and go for something. And that, so I think personally when you play aggressive, that's that's when you bat best personally.
1: Yeah, I, I and it is that thing where you know I can block out. So there's an element of because I I could play cricket when I could see. So, I do know you know how to play a forward defensive shot and how to rock onto the back foot and and but, there's that element of I'm quite a big, powerful guy, and my instinct is still just to clear the front foot and launch the ball into uh into the next county and when when it you know when bat accidentally hits ball it it does go, but it just doesn't happen often enough for my uh for my taste, so I've gone from being a number three to uh, a, a certified tail ender these days
0: <laughs> and um who would you say is the best player you've played with and against
1: now with this is, is is one of those things where i thought about this and and it, it's kind of changed over time and and you know one of the players who i've, I've played with for almost well, there's two players i've played with for all almost all of my 20 years and that's joe harrison and dan field now Joe, I think, is has always been underestimated as a player. Fantastic bowler, you know. It just so quick, so consistent. Extraordinary fielder, fielder. You know, it, it is just, you know, if the ball's in the air and it's heading out anywhere near Joe, he'll catch it. Um, you know, and a really decent batsman. I think, you know, Joe's part of Joe's challenges. He's he he's never grabbed the headlines, but he's just, you know, he would always be the first name on the team sheet, because Dan Field is an irritating little man. I mean, in terms of I'm so glad he's on my team because I'd hate to play against him. You know, an exceptional batsman, you know, just the power he generates. I mean, he's a, you know, he's tiny. You could fit him in your pocket, but he generates such power with the bat and, and the chirp, I mean, he's, he's kept wicket for England, I think, more than 50 times. And he, we never let him keep wicket for the Sharks. Um, but, oh, just, just he is, you know, an exceptionally ta- talented but very irritating player. And then I think I'm going to have to add a third, which is you know, close friend of mine, Dave Daniels, who's also a B1. You know, he only started playing 10 years ago and, and he's even a year older than myself. But he is he has made himself now the best you know total player in the country and and he's just got better and better he's won totally blind player of the year the last three years and I think in the post shades era where everyone was definitely playing on a level playing field he's definitely the best the best total I've played with in the post shades era
0: and how about the best player yeah. you've played against
1: well Present company accepted, Aaron, obviously. <laughs> um, you know, there are some players who, who, you know, from the batsman side of things, there are players who can just, it's the partials who can take the game away from you. Um, you know, and most of them are sort of England legend names like Matt Dean or Luke Sugg. Um, yeah, Ed Hossel's a fantastic player. I'm, I'm very lucky that most years I get Ed Hossel. So, whilst I know he's a brilliant player, he's he's not. He's he is um he's often unlucky against me. Um. So yeah, they 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 would be the, the the sort of batsman which is a bowler. You kind of think, oh really, you know, and it it's that you ask the question of, you know, where was that or oh, it's dead straight tiny. It was a good length on middle stump, and you think, well, I can't do a lot more than that if he's then, you know, carted that over square leg, um. A player who's who, who's still about, but back in his day was was just unbelievable, and that was Damien Corrigan when he was playing for South Wales back, you know, in the early two thousands. You know, I think he averaged over a hundred, and he's a giant of a man. He's six foot ten and a bit, and plays with a child's bat and could just belt the ball miles. So as a a close proximity fielder. I never enjoyed fielding to Damien. And in terms of bowlers, unfortunately, he's no longer with us and the Cup's named after him now. Heinrich Swanepoel was just an extraordinary athlete. I mean, he played international sport. He was captain of England. And with that ball, it was just mercilessly fast and accurate. And I think, I think you played in that game at the... Nursery ground at the Aegeus Bowl, where I think yes. he took seven for six, yeah. And it was just that. Oh, that's it. The stumps, then off we go, and <laughs> and yeah, you know he he, that that was him in his absolute. Well, I say it was him in his pomp. Most people who had um who had seen him play had said by that stage he was slowing down a little bit, but um, he was always far too good for me.
0: I remember our first ever game for Hampshire as well. And I remember you, you know, warning us, like, you know, if you hear a South African accent at the uh, the other end of the crease, you know, be warned, it's coming in fast. And uh, I think, you know, that was probably one of the few days I uh, came out of a game where, uh, you know, I wasn't bowled out by Heinrich. And I think we, we got to 50 runs and, you know, we were delighted that we got, you know, one batting point, just for get to 50 runs. So uh, baptism of fire, I think, what they was going against Heinrich.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, no, it was, I think that was our first game and it was that, you know, it, it is that piece where, you know, for a number of our guys who had never seen, never, never been part of a league game, and I think at that point, probably if, Metro at that time were, were usually fielding either nine, ten, or eleven internationals in their starting lineup. So you know, it was a case of it, it just kept coming at you. And uh, what
0: would you say has been the highlight of your blind cricketing career?
1: Yeah. And, and again, I I, I tend, I, you know, every cricketer looks back at their stats and, and has those smile moments. And and for me, the 2014 Cup final was probably my personal highlight from a playing perspective. And, you know, there's a story behind it, which is that there had to be a B1, a, a total player going in at three. and And that was me. But my role was very clear, which was to get in and get out because our openers had had this sort of season where they just couldn't stop scoring runs. So I'd usually be wandering out at 150-odd or 200-odd for one. And I was tasked with having a big swing. And if I got out, that was okay. Um, and in the cup final, we lost two wickets, and it was fi- we were 15 for two. And it was a case of, um, we'd better change our plan here 'Cause we need to rebuild a bit. And so I myself and Dan Field she had a third wicket partnership of fifty four where I outscored him. And if anybody knows Dan Field, <laughs> you don't outscore Dan very often. And it was only when I look back on it I scored I think twenty eight of twenty nine balls. And my previous seven innings had been ducks. So it was that came to the party when I was needed. Um and then we had we had Somerset on the ropes and I was asked to bowl. Um, and I think my first ball got clanged for four, but I ended up taking two for nine from my first over. Now, the, the game ended earlier. It was an injury in the next over. Now, what most people didn't know at the time is on that last ball of that first over that I had bowled, I had absolutely torn my groin. You know, I could just about stand up. I was trying to work out how I was going to bowl another over, and there was an injury to Cy si Ledwith, and luckily, you know, he recovered. But from a personal perspective that game in terms of you know not because i wanted it to be all about me but i want you know i always want to make that contribution for the team and that was a game where we were in bother um you know we got out of bother and and you know to 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 win that game was was really that was that was probably the 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 sort of individual highlight from a playing perspective i'm enormously proud of of, you know, some of the awards I've won. Uh, the the fielder of the year last year was just, it was almost so ridiculous that suddenly after 19 years, I'd learned how to field and catch and, you know, was was doing it, it was slightly absurd. And there's a game that sort of lives long in the memory, which is, uh, you know, it was a game against Lancashire in the Cup. And myself and Dave Daniels, who's the other sort of player who bowls total for Sussex, we had this sort of friendly rivalry. And I think our partials had had sprayed it around a bit at the start and they brought the B, you know, brought myself and Dave on. And, you know, the two batsmen met in the middle and I heard them say, oh, they're they're bringing the B1s on now. We're bringing B1s on. We need to up the scoring rate. And I sort of, you know, passed them and did the how rude. And I think it was something like 60 odd for none when Dave and I came on. And I took a wicket, he took a wicket, I took a wicket, he took a wicket, he took a wicket, I took a wicket. And I think it's sort of, I think it was something like 86 for six. They were begging, they were telling the umpires that they had to take us off because we had bowled our six overs. (laughs) Um, So that was just a lovely, for me, it was that lovely moment of sometimes the totals do get disrespected in the game. And, you know, for the pair of us to be sort of egging each other on and, you know, winning the game, that, just that lovely moment of, yeah, 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 you, you kind of, sometimes it's not wise to disrespect the totals.
0: And, and uh, something you kind of touched on earlier is obviously about the introduction of Shades, which I think if I remember sort of probably came in around about 2012-ish, around that sort of time. Mm. So what's been your experience of, you know, having to play with Shades on, and has it been a positive or negative thing for the game in your opinion?
1: Well, it's a tricky one because I I, I came very close to retiring at that point because in, in 2011, I, I was always, I, I had always been very transparent about my levels of vision so i was always very honest that i had light dark perception you know i couldn't see detail you know that the 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 sort of definition for b1 was was being able to count fingers and i couldn't count fingers but i wasn't totally blind and the piece that it, it was for me it was a very difficult time for the sport because you had some players who were playing as B1s, who were not B1s. They weren't even close to being B1s. And they almost made no secret of the fact that they weren't B1s. So, you know, I remember in a Hampshire game, a player, you know, had started to slow down his scoring and his runner said to him, come on, you're slowing up here. And he said, well, I'm really struggling to see the ball. Now the sun's getting low. And it was that, really? You're not supposed to be able to see the ball. And we played them on the Sunday. And I I was cross because I knew this guy was cheating. And the first ball that I stuck down to him because he opened, it was a horrible no ball. So it only bounced once. And it bounced up to chest height about three feet outside off stump. And he reverse swept it for eight. And it was that you're not even, do you know what I mean? It's not, you're not low partial at this point you are you know to use the numbers you're a b3 b4 and you know for me it was ruining the game now my view is always that that should never have been allowed to happen you know people say oh well you know you can't really and it's like no 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 there's no ambiguity here you know we all know and his captain knows and his captain's still playing him so for me this is the whole Kind of moral basis of the sport is wrecked, and so th- something had to be done. Now the shades were brought in, but there's there's a there's a tension in that, Aaron, which is that, you know, I had light dark perception. I wasn't black blind to use that term. Do you know what I mean? And so it just felt outrageous to me that I was having to put on the shades which would rob me of that light-dark perception, where at the other end of the spectrum, and we see this in all blind sports, you know, well, you you hear phrases like, well, he's very B3, or, you know, he's a B6, implying that a partially sighted player has much more vision than their sight classification allows. So at the time, there was these few people who were just outrageous, but actually most of the runs were still being scored by partials. And some of those were, you know, very questionable. So it really kind of upset me that, that there was this, you know, I'm going to have my light perception taken away because there are outrageous cheats in the game. And at the other end of the spectrum, kind of we're, because that's more difficult to deal with, we're letting that go. And I can't even remember who had the conversation with me, but somebody said, well, Tiny, if you retire, they'll think you were a cheat. And that kind of really struck with me. And I didn't well, I'm not a bloody cheat. I've always been clear about what I can and can't see. And they said, yeah, yeah. But if shades come in and you walk away, and I just thought, well, I'm not bloody having that. You know, it was the dogged streak in the Aaron that was, well, "Well, that is not on. That is not going to happen. So it was a case of, well, I'll put the shades on. Now, the fascinating thing for me was that I got better. And it was only after I thought about this, particularly with batting, is that when you are in the advanced stages of RP, sometimes you have little windows within your eyesight, which still sort of work. So your brain is still telling you that you can see. And so when you're looking for something, you're wobbling your head about, or you're trying to get your head at a strange angle to find that little window that will allow you to see. And when I put the shades on, I stopped all that. You know, and again, in classic red ball, it's that if you're batting, you know, keep your head still, get your head forward over the ball. You know, your head's still the heaviest part of your body. Do you know what I mean? Keep it still. And I stopped moving about. I stopped looking for the ball. And suddenly, I'm, I'm, the ball's finding the bat. You know, it's, it's... Um, and there's that element of, I think prior to Shades, I might have been nominated once or twice, perhaps, for a national awards. Post Shades, I have been I've been nominated in a category, or I've won a category, every year since.
0: That's that's impressive, and uh, I think you know it's uh, credit to how you've, I guess, uh, still you know getting into your later years, is still developing and always you know growing as a player as well. So I think that's that's you know something to be incredibly proud of. Um, one other thing as well, I guess, with you know whilst we're on the subject of B ones, is that you know a lot of um. B1s playing the game are probably over, you know, sort of the age of 40, I guess. Um, So I just wondered, you know, why you think that is? Why do you think we're not seeing as many young B1s in the game?
1: let, Let me throw a horrible stat at you, which is for the last 10 years, the partially cited player of the year, every recipient has been under 30. For the B1 player of the year for the last ten years, every recipient has been over forty.
0: That's quite remarkable, isn't it? You know, it's um, yeah, you know, shows a big difference in perhaps the age, perhaps the age of you know, um, the partials that play playing and the ages of the B1s that are playing. Well, I, I guess
1: the thing for me, Aaron, is that you know, I'm fifty-four now, you know. Dave Daniels has won the B1 of the year for the last three years. And you can say, well, he's an exceptional talent. But if you look at the other players shortlisted, there's a couple of lads who, you know, have been shortlisted alongside. But we're in our mid-50s. You know, and whilst there is not that physical demand of having to run around after the ball that there is as for for partials, there is a real worry for me that we shouldn't even you know we should be making up the numbers in the beating the attacks at the national level i mean i started at 34 most cricketers are considering retirement at 34 mm-hmm. and i think the bit that the, the bit that worries me for the future of the game is that th- there should be lads in their early 20s in their late teens coming through who are better than us and they just aren't the young b ones coming into the game and part of that is the challenge that you see in team sport everywhere you know you can look at all the statistics about participation and with the exception of girls sport you know in cricket rugby you know football participation is massively down but i think when you couple that with the the fact that the majority of vi youngsters now are being educated mainstream and it really does worry me that he is considered optional you know it it, it is a it's too difficult to do you know what what do you do with the you know with a young blind child um you know when we're playing football or rugby we don't want to take the risk um you know we'll sit them on an exercise bike or something or they can go i i it really does trouble me that that you know that that bringing through youngsters into into VI sport, I'm, it, it might be working well in other sports, but I'm just not seeing it in cricket.
0: I, I, I guess, it's and that is guess it's a particular worry for cricket as well, because obviously you have to have, um, you know, at least three B1 players in a team, don't you? So obviously yep. if there aren't enough B1s around, then, you know, you can't field 11 players.
1: And, and, and I think that's it. You've got to have two who can bowl. And if you haven't got two who can bowl, you can't can't play the game. And it it, it is that element of you you need your B1s to be credible. Because the the risk is, if they're not, then you're in a position where, you know, if you're playing for a team full of really good partials, you know, and they're keeping the scoring rate down to four, five and over. And you come on for your three overs as the B1. And you are, you know, you struggle to bowl six straight deliveries. And the ones that you do are loopy, awful, and are getting, you know, if you're going for 18, 20, 25 runs, and your three overs go for, let's say, 60, 70 runs, and the rest of the team have kept it down... You you're gonna feel that. And so, you know, they are they are essential to the game, but I will say, and this is one of the things to the shame of some other sites, the expectation within Sussex has always been that the game will be won or lost on the performance of the B ones. Now people say well, that's rubbish, and you know, you've got one of the best batsmen in, in ever to play the game, but there is that element of you know, between myself, Dave, and Mark Ollie Oliphant, you know, who is a, you know, is a decent enough bowler. And if he wasn't playing for Sussex, you know, he'd be bowling every single game. Um, and he's a really top fielder. We expect, we go into each game expecting to do something and the rest of the team expect us to do something. And I think in some of the teams, there's almost, a, you know, uh, you know, oh, we've got to put a B1 in now. Oh, God, we've got to bowl a B1 over. And I just think, no, as you point out there, if, you, if they choose not to turn up because you don't treat them with respect, mm. none, none of you are playing
0: and you've also got to create an environment in any team where you know players are encouraged and you know um feel it's a positive environment and they you know they want to learn to develop their game as well so you know if, if you're having a, if you're yeah. going along as a b1 and your experience is very negative the chances are you probably not want to go back so i think you know you, you, you've hit the nail on the head really it's you know you've got to be yeah you know,
1: and sometimes there, there is that there is that balancing act you know because the part of the rules are that you've got to have a you know. One B one batsman in your top three and two in your top six. Now, particularly when you're playing something like a T twenty game, it, it can be awful if you've got a B one who's stranded. You know, they are they're against really good bowling. They can't, you know, get the connection, get bat on ball, and they're not getting out. You know, and it, it's where, you know, I I hate it, but I've seen teams burn their B1 by intentionally running them out. I've seen teams who intentionally won't run the B1 out because they know the batting team's trying to do it. And it just, it is, I mean, fortunately, it's pretty rare, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's a great look. You know, for me, we want to be encouraging B1s. We want to be, you know, working with them and, and, and you know, setting expectations that you can. You know, it, it, it is that piece where, you know, actually throwing a ball because, you know, one one arm action as a B1, you simply go into the garden with a football and throw it 100 times a day over the close season or even 20 times a day over the close season. You'll be a much better bowler when the, the season starts.
0: You've um, obviously been playing the game for, uh, you know, I guess around about 20 years now. How would you say the game uh, has developed and changed over time?
1: yeah and i think that's where you know some of the development work like with uh, john garbert uh, who's the development director at um blind cricket in england wales the game has grown massively you know there there were the 10 teams and there was also a culture that for actually quite a lot of those teams um you know there was a there was a travelling culture so because there were so few teams you you know you travelled to play for them. You know, I remember, you know, Eastern Vipers who played in Cambridge. Um, they had a B1 bowler who was very good called Daz Cook, who flew down from Newcastle. Um, you know, so people did make journeys to, to play. Um, and I think now, if you look at it, that there is a, you know, there are eight teams in, in the National League, but there are also three development leagues. Um, you know, where there are teams playing as well. So, you know, there was London Metro and then there was Sussex in, you know, if we go back to 2005 and then in 2009, there was Hampshire. Well, now if you, you know, if you look at that corner, you know, and there there was a team called, there were two teams in London. There was one called London Sports that sort of played out more towards Essex. But if you look at it now, there's Kent, there's Surrey, Surrey, Field two sides, Metro, Metro field two sides, there's Sussex, there's Hampshire, there's Dorset, there's Berkshire, there's Gloucestershire, there's Somerset, you know, so the game has grown exponentially, you know, with a lot more players playing.
0: Absolutely. And, and, and I guess, you know, it, it's been great to see. I think, I mean, you know, uh, as you mentioned, you know, even when I started playing in about 2008, there was only, you know, one National League of eight sides. And so when I returned to playing blind cricket a few years later and there was, you know, obviously in, you know, all these development leagues, it was obviously, you know, fantastic to see. Um, Tiny, you've obviously had a very successful, uh, you know, domestic career. Has uh, international, um, you know, cricketing career ever been on the horizon for you?
1: unfortunately not um so the the main difference is that the international game is played with a small cricket ball size ball with ball bearings in it that's bold underarm so to be good at that game you have got to be short fit (laughs) agile and i have never been any of those things so the the international game has moved on massively it's similar to the domestic game you know back in 2004 the international team was just sort of coming together. It was very much in its infancy. It was a little bit of a sort of, you know, it wasn't necessarily the best players that played. The ECB started to get involved. And then there was a whole crop, you know, of of young players, the Powers Brothers, Luke Sarg, you know, Danfield, Joe Harrison, that whole sort of, you know, there was this whole, Sort of spike of young players, Nathan Boy, you know, all of whom went into the England setup, and then the expectations were, you know, were that you you trained as a as an elite athlete, and you know, as I said to you at the time, you know, 2004, I had a three-year-old or a four-year-old and a one-year-old, um, and the commitment to international cricket meant you know, ten weekends a year, and then two three weeks off. If there was an international tour or a tournament, and even if I would have been good enough, agile enough, all of those things, I I never could have made that commitment. Now, there is a part of you that remains wistful to say, well, you know, if I was, you know, if the, the international game was played with the UK domestic ball, well, I've always been towards the top end. You know, I've always been in the sort of top three, four bowlers. You know, I, I can now field. Would, would I have got some caps as, a, as an England international if we moved, played with a domestic ball? Maybe, maybe, but we'll never know.
0: <laughs> and what are your cricketing ambitions for the future?
1: Well, it, and it, it's quite simple, to be honest, it, which is just to keep going. And, and to be credible, so you know I, I I play I still play for Sussex in the elite league, and occasionally I turn out for Hampshire in the development league, and it's a tricky one for me because in the development league I, I usually play to make up numbers, um, and and I struggle I, I I struggle to get really motivated for the game because there is this element of, you know, I have played at a reasonable level, so, you know. If there's some young players or or even some older players, and by I mean sort of in their seventies, if I'm you know bowling quickly and well and knocking them over, I'm not getting a great sense of delight from that, you know. So it is a question of I'll, I'll I'll go and have an afternoon with my friends. So I want to be playing at the elite level for as long as I'm a credible player. And there is a piece where you know when I reach the point that I'm not credible anymore then I will stop, but there is a piece of me that, you know, I, I, I've I been on my own health journey, I'm I'm probably, you know, a, as light, and that's not light, as, as I was in 1992, um, I'm probably as strong as I was in my mid-twenties before I started playing blind cricket, um, so there's that element of, as long as nothing snaps off, you know, my intention is to keep playing hard, having fun and, and winning stuff with Sussex.
0: And you mentioned, um, you know, towards the start of the podcast that you uh, work for Guide Dogs. I um, just wondered if you can tell us, um, you know, a little bit about your role um, and what you do for the charity. Yes,
1: yeah, so I've been there for five years now. Um, I'm currently working as the Deputy Chief Operations Officer. So, you know, it is a case of I, I think I've had five jobs in five years. So. I joined Guide Dogs really just just wanting to help. So, you know, I'd had a a reasonably long career in the pharmaceutical industry. I joined Guide Dogs, you know, really to help grow the reach. And, you know, back in 2018, there was the By My Side strategy, which was about growing the reach of Guide Dogs and getting more dogs out there, um, you know, which really spoke to me as well as supporting people, not just with dogs, but you know it was to live actively independently and well and I guess you can see there the ties between you know my love of cricket and sport and and it was about you know going there to help obviously the pandemic hit um you know well publicized the damage that that did to our breeding program the loss of a huge swathe of our volunteers um and so since then I've been you know supporting operations bringing in new processes trying to get things back on track and stabilized and, you know, really just kind of addressing those internal challenges to to get the waiting lists back down, the dogs flowing and, you know, more people out and about there living the life they choose.
0: And um, you know, when you're not if you're not working or playing cricket, what are your other hobbies?
1: So I, I've I've become a bit of a gym gym bunny Uh, but not really i mean i'm in there two three times a week and again part of it is the whole challenge of the age thing um you know it's it's i don't know you go in and you see the 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 person at the gym and they say oh what you need to do is is you know lots of cardio lots of cardio and i'm like don't do cardio i'm quite happy to lift heavy things so there's a bit of that going on obviously you know walking my dog i still love my rugby so I'm a vice president of Portsmouth Rugby Club, so I am there most weekends during the winter, um, you know, trying to follow the game, um, you know, listening with with a chum. Unfortunately, I lost my uh, my spotter, Dr. Dick Tyrrell, um, late last year, who would, you know, for seven, eight years, we had been uh, touring the South Coast to these, you know, glamorous places like New Milton and Old Walkoutians in London, and uh, yes, yeah, so I still love my rugby, and um, you know, again, it's it, it is wonderful that so much of that now is you know, every game is on the radio. So, you know, big shout out to BBC Radio Devon and uh, and the old buffers that commentate on the Exeter Chief games. So, yeah, I, I try not to miss my rugby, and then if it's not sport related, then I do love an audible book. So, um, yeah, I'm always uh. I've always got one on the go.
0: Brilliant. Well, uh, Tony, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking to you. Thank you very much for, uh, you know, coming on uh, on the podcast and sharing your journey. It's uh, obviously been fortunate enough to know you over uh, you the know, last sort of 15 years. And I think, you know, you've been a real uh, kind of inspiration for someone like myself as well, who, you know, obviously has the same eye condition. And I think you've always been a very positive role model for me. Um, you know, you're probably a little bit Further down your sight loss journey than me, but it's good to I think you know have that someone to speak to who's been through that experience and to learn from. So you know, thank you for you know always being a, a positive role model for for people like myself. And uh, you know, I look forward to you know hopefully uh, seeing you out in the middle of the cricket field at some point in the future as well.
1: Oh, absolutely, and thank you for the kind words. No, my my whole approach to life, Aaron, has always been you can only play the cards you've dealt. So. There is an element of, and you only get one go at this life. So, you know, go and have as much fun as you can. You know, my life motto is no fear, which is a lie. But you can, you keep telling yourself often enough, you will just go and do it. So thank you for having me on today. And, and who knows, maybe in another five, ten years, I'll still be turning my arm and uh, I can come back and um, try and work out why I haven't retired yet.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Tony. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tiny. If you haven't already done so, please make sure you follow us on social media. We are now also on TikTok, so if you can please follow at the disability sports pod. I'll be back in two weeks time when I'll be speaking to Adam Solon about his ambitions for visually impaired boxing. And as always, thank you very much for listening.